Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Welcome to episode 67 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So this week I'm going to be chatting with Joe Carter, not his real name. So Joe, I had a really interesting chat with Joe, really enjoyed it, fascinating. He was sent my way from uh, another listener uh, and Joe was one of the longest serving undercover officers probably in the history of British policing um, and certainly in the Met. I'm sure there'll be someone out there who'll say, no, 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 it was so-and-so, but uh, whichever way you look at it, Joe was involved in undercover policing, both as an undercover officer himself, as well as as a civilian undercover officer when he finished as a police officer. So really fascinating, really enjoyed the chat. We covered a lot of ground, talked about all sorts of things, so you can listen to that in a minute. First of all, as I do, uh, just cover off a couple of bits and bobs from the last week or so. So one of the key things was the announcement by Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, that the uh, single route of entry into policing, i.e. via some sort of pre-existing degree or studying to have a degree uh, upon appointment is going to be scrapped well she's asked the college of policing to look into and design an entry route into policing that does not require applicants to hold a degree or to study for one which i don't know what you think but i think that's a really good thing it's a really divisive subject this um and those who uh, hold opposing views tend to hold those views quite strongly. What, what kind of amuses me slightly is that uh, those who are very vociferous in favour of maintaining this requirement to have a degree are, surprise, surprise, those people who are employed at various academic institutions delivering the training. So. Obviously, they're not going to be very happy about that. Um, I suppose what I would say is this isn't about you. This is about what's best for policing. And I've made my views pretty clear that whilst 
Uh, I think there is a place for having a degree in policing. I definitely don't think that it's uh, it should be made a requirement either to have one already or to obtain one. I think policing is something that requires so much common sense, people skills, those soft skills, empathy, strong sense of public service, bravery, courage, lots of things that cannot be taught in a classroom. Um, so yeah, so we'll see how that one pans out. The other thing I thought it would be worth just touching on is the growing uh, acknowledgement, I suppose, from those very senior leaders in policing that the requirement now for change and reform in policing uh, is becoming absolutely crystal clear. And for a long time, it's been frustrating to listen to so many people at sort of, you know, junior ranks in policing or lower ranks in policing who are so frustrated that their leaders just don't seem to get it, that they're sick and tired of sitting, babysitting, mental health patients, picking up the work of other agencies, whilst policing gets completely lambasted by the media, uh, the public are really fed up with getting crap service. And um, Mark Riley, Sir Mark Riley, the Commissioner of the Met, published a blog the other day which I thought um, was excellent and music to my ears or to my eyes really because I was reading it I suppose it's not, I wasn't listening to it was I so that's a bit silly so I just thought it'd be quite helpful to read out some sections from Sir Mark's article because uh, there are lots of bits in it that feel so um, overdue so what he says is, the need for reform, not tweaks, was my focus today while speaking with an audience of police leaders. And this was the summit last week with all of the chief constables around the country and the police and crime commissioners. Uh, he says, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We must be less cautious when it comes to challenging the blurred and bureaucratic mission our frontline officers face. My goodness, I'm sure someone wrote a book all about that. This has been created by police leaders, policymakers, and others who have pursued the view that more paperwork will deliver more trust. It hasn't and it won't. The answer lies in leadership, not managerialism. We need a practical approach to policing with no distractions where officers are freed up of bureaucracy and demand passed on by others. Oh my God, the world has moved on. In the past, policing and the wider criminal justice system has looked at evolution in a vain bid to keep pace. In a digital area, it is revolution that is needed. Since I became commissioner nine weeks ago, I've been determined that we must look hard at ourselves so that we can deliver our highest priority, more trust, less crime and high standards. How are we setting up our honest and often heroic officers to succeed? It cannot be right that our systems lead some officers to be more concerned about submitting the correct paperwork than taking dangerous people off the streets and preventing predatory crimes behind closed doors. 
I believe our criminal justice system is the most bureaucratic in the world and it is unacceptable that we still have COVID charging standards temporarily imposed by others. They slow down justice, create more work for police and lead to victim withdrawal. Fewer than a quarter of calls we receive are about crime. And I've heard from officers who feel they are suffering death by a thousand paper cuts, which I thought was a very good analogy. One area I'm concerned about is the care of those in mental health crisis. I recently spent time with officers in one area of London where half of their shift were on mental health watches from the minute they walked in the door. Police officers are caring, they're compassionate, but I'm afraid it is not our profession. It is not what we are most skilled to do. So we need others to play their role so police can focus on our key responsibility of fighting crime and protecting the public. Uh, he then talks about um, the Home Office. I welcome the Home Office productivity review, which I hope will show the true extent of how our officers are being spread too thinly. But it has to happen quickly because there is so much for us to do. So, so yeah, really, really positive comments there. But I suppose one of my biggest concerns is that, uh, in truth, we've heard this all before. Uh, policing has heard this too many times already. And I tell a story in my book by, uh, back in 2008, Sir Ronnie Flanagan, who was the ex-chief constable of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, uh, was appointed by the Home Office, ironically, to look at unnecessary bureaucracy and policing. Um, I spent some time with him when I was an inspector at Stetchford in Birmingham. I, I'd collated a whole portfolio of examples of completely wasted effort, uh, mainly driven by home office, crime recording and incident closure rules that tied officers up for hours and hours in uh, just complete waste of time. That situation still exists. It hasn't changed at all, uh, driving data quality to the detriment of public safety. And uh, as well as that, we now have a, a preoccupation with doing the work of other agencies, uh, particularly around mental health. Uh, and uh, net result is that uniform officers are completely pissed off with it, leaving in their droves. The public are pissed off with it. Everyone thinks the police are doing a crap job. Uh, the government thinks we're doing a crap job. The media think we're doing a crap job. So something urgently needs to change. But the reality is that the Home Office, in my experience, move at a glacially slow pace. And uh, their idea of radical is not anyone else's idea of radical. So I fear that they will tinker around the edges. Nothing fundamentally will change. Uh, other agencies responsible for their work, such as mental health services, social services, etc., will sit on their hands and will not fundamentally step up and take the demand back from the police where it shouldn't have been in the first place. So I suppose what I'm saying is we shall watch with great interest as to what happens and the proof of the pudding, as always, will be in the eating. But I wish Sir Mark well. I think he's making all the right noises. Uh, I'd like to hear other chief constables around the country making the same noises. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see. Right, let's get into the interview with Joe. Morning, Joe. Good morning, Ian. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? 
Very, very well. Thank you very much. And thank you for uh, listening. Excellent. Good. You gonna you gonna switch your camera on, or are you? Is are it you on? Going... Is it not on? Or no, I can I see. I can see Louise, who I believe you're hi you've hijacked her email yeah. account, haven't you? Exactly. Can I? I'm gonna get her here because I don't know what I'm doing here. Oh, the to... connect, mate. Come on. Hello, can you switch the camera on, though? We've got our, one of our granddaughters today. Do you, need, do, you need a do you need a teenager in the room to help I you? I need, well, she's not quite a teenager, but she's considerably younger than me. In case uh, <laughs> an eight-year-old will probably figure it out, won't they? Absolutely. <laughs> You're clearly clearly very competent and comfortable with technology, Joe. Yeah, absolutely not. The camera's not on. How do I do oh, that? The camera's not on, sorry. Um... Hey, there he is. Oh, there's my... <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you, darling. Thank you very much. Excellent. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Very, very good. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, good. No, it's been really, uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting to you because you're the second uh, XUC that um, we've had because uh, I don't know if you listened to the Shay Doyle um, interview. Yeah, I listened uh, to some of that, Ian. Yeah, I know, I know him and uh, was involved in his training, so yeah. All right, yeah, yeah, no, good. So uh, it's a, it's an area of policing that I've had a little bit of involvement in, but I'd be lying if I was to say that I was anything like an expert. I suppose having worked in covert policing, we tended to use the, um, how would you put it, the product or the output of uh, undercover officers, um, but I had very little involvement directly with them. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So um, what, what, what I'd really like to do is to treat this just like um, fairly similar to the normal format. So what we'll do is yeah, of course. talk about um, your uh, decision to join the police in the first place, what motivated that, um, joining your early career, and then obviously then moving into the UC side of things. And we can talk a bit about that because um, in no particular, just go where the conversation takes us, really. Of you're... course, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've listened right. to a couple of the others, Ian, and uh, I think you, you're doing a great job. And uh, mm -hmm. I sort of had a disconnect with the police for a while. And uh, listening to a couple of these podcasts has sort of got me back into it. So it's, it's, <laughs> I don't know whether uh, that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think well, I think you're in good company there, mate. I think uh, every, every one of us has got a love-hate relationship with policing, haven't we? Um, yeah, I, I certainly um, needed to take my break from it, you know, um, just sort of sort of the last five or six years, just a total break from anything to do with the police. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Any investigation jobs, anything like that. When the phone rang, it was, you know, yeah, not for me. I've moved on. So it's quite, you know, it's a reintroduction for me. <laughs> well, you do well, a great job, I've got to you say. Can, oh, bless you. Thanks. Yeah, well, you can dip your toe back in the water for for this morning and then uh, you can go back to keeping <laughs> it at, box. <laughs> keeping it at arm's length you know so uh so yeah so let's talk about um you know what prompted you to join the police in the first place and when was that and i think as a, as a lot of people um who you previously interviewed in i didn't have a clue what i wanted to do i wasn't the brightest academically although members of my family were um and I joined at 18 and a half, so right as a as a youngster, straight into the Met. Um, did what I was doing, got carried along with Hendon and all the people from all over the country. They've yeah. done exactly the same, you know, yeah. different walks of life, um, ex-miners, 
not many university people as there are now. Mm -hmm. Found myself doing okay at Hendon and then being posted. And it was as simple as that, caught up in the moment, really. So from judging from your accent, you're obviously from down that neck of the woods, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my family moved around quite a while and sort of ended up as, uh, in an overspill town, going to school in Stevenage, just outside London, which was an overspill mm -hmm. London, one of the new towns. Not very pleasant, you know, uh, on a on a Monday morning, you used to get school dinners were 50p. So yeah. on a Monday morning, you had £2.50 in your pocket, each of the kids getting on the bus. And when you got to school, you're giving your £2.50 and you get five raffle tickets. So <laughs> each day you rip one off and that'd be for your lunch money. Yeah. There was an Irish family that, you know, controlled the bus. And um, Monday morning was robbery day. So oh, really? You didn't God. fight your corner. So I remember when my, um, when my brother started and I said, just follow what I do. So something's going to happen on the bus and he didn't know what was going. So they come up behind you in their seat, but you, the other one would go in your pockets. Yeah. This was his cruel introduction to secondary school. And, you know, I, as that was happening, he saw what I did to them. And I said, don't ever, ever let anyone do that to you ever again. And he, um, it's funny because he's now a lecturer at university uh, up north. And he says he still remembers that to this day. And he said he hated every time he got on the bus at school because, you know, yeah. he knew what might be coming. So I know it's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. Some of those, some of those experiences you have as a kid, you know, I mean, God. Amazing quite... how they live with you, isn't it? You know, I can't yeah. remember yesterday, Ian, do you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. There's, there's some stuff that, you know, when you're a kid, um, particularly some of the bullying and violence, you know, I was I was always quite a, you know, I wasn't a fighter. I've never been a fighter, you know. Um, but uh, obviously growing up in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, uh, you know, you're going to come across people who are who want to hurt you, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and because I went to grammar school as well, um, you know, you would get picked on sometimes on your way home from school by some of the kids from some of the maybe slightly rougher schools, you know. And uh, yeah, if you didn't if you didn't fight, you you had to. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's horrible, isn't you it? You had to run fast or fight, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, generally I would run, but occasionally, <laughs> occasionally yes. you have to stand your ground, don't you? You know, it's yeah. interesting now that I've got grandkids and one of them is getting bullied now at school. He's only five. But he's very um, emotional and, you know, kind and probably all the things that I'm not. And, you know, half of you wants to say, you know, get him out back in the gym and go, this is what you do when somebody. But, you know, he's such yeah. a nice kid. You don't want you don't want that in him, do you? you know? No, brutalising. So you went to, so you went to Hendon. And yes. um, where did you get posted? Um, I got posted to the Sleepy Hollow. That is probably one of the most expensive places in London now, which was Chiswick, Tango Charlie. Oh, right, okay. So I went out there, hated life, hated being a policeman, hated living in the section house, mm. hated everything about it, just looked forward to playing football twice right. a week. Because, you know, um, police sport then was everything. You know, yeah, yeah. really, yeah. really, um, you know, every, everyone took part, rugby, football, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and really didn't enjoy it at all. Didn't think I'd last, didn't think I'd stay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, did you play? Did you play football for the Met? 
I did uh, on a couple of occasions play for the Met, but again, didn't like that. It was a closed shop. It wasn't like mm. I much preferred playing for outside teams, decent standard of football on a Saturday, you yeah. know, mixing with everyone but policemen. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed playing for the station and stuff like that. That was, you know, yeah, that was good. You, you go to him court on a Thursday and it would be absolutely mobbed, you know, you yeah, yeah. Bar afterwards. Yeah, I think yeah. The thing missing now from the police, that camaraderie, that teamwork. Yeah. which you yeah. know that helps doesn't it I think definitely yeah I used to play hockey for the Met I used to play at Edinburgh Court and used to enjoy uh, I just loved it it's great you know and going to going to the bar afterwards and having a couple of beers and a bit, of, yeah. bit of crack and everything it's good isn't it so so Chiswick um, for those who are listening have no idea so that's West London quite an, yeah. aff, quite an affluent suburb just sort of um Kind of not that far from the city. It's it's um it's on the river, isn't it? So you've it's got... right on the Thames. Yeah, the yeah. boat finishes there for anyone who's listening. It goes finishes at Chiswick Bridge. Um, yeah, lots of very very affluent people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Brentford, so it's Chiswick and Brentford, but right. it was considered a sleepy hollow. You know, let's let's not yeah. beat about the bush. It's not like some people that yeah. were posted. I don't know over to Carter Street or somewhere like that. You know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Para Road, those sort of places. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was sleepy. I'd be out walking over the night duty for literally eight hours, you know, which again I preach now to say it you grew up very quickly, you learn, yeah. you know, where to put yourself. You were yeah. never picked up by, by another panda car. It was, you know, people say you're nuts. I said, No, the things I used to see when I was out walking. Yeah. But, I know it's it's mad, isn't it? I mean, I feel very privileged to have experienced London during those wee small hours of the night. You know, when it's really quiet and you're out on foot patrol or or driving for that matter. You know, later on, maybe you know when you've got a few years in, and uh, you see a different side to London, don't you? In those uh, early early hours of the morning, don't you? But Ian, you learn about yourself, don't you, as well? Yeah, you learn yeah. a lot about yourself. You know. First couple of night duties, you know, I was scared of my own shadow. I'd walk in the middle of the road and stuff like that so that people wouldn't jump out at me, you know. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's funny. I grew up very quickly, didn't enjoy it, sort of got in trouble with my reporting sergeant, who was also the um, football team coach, so I thought he was my best buddy because I was probably one of the better players, if not, you know, the best in the team. So I thought, I've got it cracked here. And then when he reported on me, you know, I was up before the chief superintendent saying, what's going on here? You're not going to, you're not going to make it through the first six months. So, right. yeah. So what was that? Just uh, getting into getting in trouble or was it? No, um... just probably lazy, you know, not doing mm. it, stopping cars and reporting them for traffic offences. You know, I'm sorry, but any traffic cops listening, mm -hmm. <laughs> if I see a traffic cop in my rear view mirror, it's like nightmare over and over again yeah um, i know it I makes, you like feel, traffic makes you feel guilty doesn't it even though i'm an ex-police officer i still feel guilty whenever you see a police car behind you it's, it's weird isn't it it's weird it's absolutely straight you know further on in my undercover career i was in the back of traffic cars on three occasions but you know yeah. in the back once with a film crew that were filming this you know fly on the wall documentary right and on each occasion, I got out of the police car without them reporting me for anything. 
Mm. At one stage, I had £74,000 in the boot of my car, which they hadn't searched or anything. I was going to do something. And I was on the hard shoulder of the M62 in the back of a traffic police car. And I just thought, well, go and search my car and you might, you know, think you've got a, a big drug sword here or, or something. But, yeah. I once got I once got tugged um, by the traffic on my way to work for early term one morning. I used to ride a very fast, agile, two-stroke um, Kawasaki that was like it was a two hundred cc Kawasaki that was f- the most fun bike I've ever ridden. Right. And I and I used to ride to work at like light warp speed uh, for early turn, and I used to um, ride through the Wandsworth one-way system like and and like knee down and everything around the round the bikes and like you know popping wheelies at the traffic lights to get away quick and all this nonsense and it was like really i mean there's nobody around you it was like no. half, half five six o'clock in the morning you know and they they gave me a tug halfway through the Wandsworth one-way system and put me in the back of the car and said uh uh, is this bike still have you just stolen this bike because that's the way you're riding it <laughs> and, I, and i said no 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 i'm on my way to work and uh he said all right where do you work and i said oh. i was like mm. clapton police station and he's like you bloody idiot you know what i mean <laughs> like, <laughs> give me a right viking Kick where did you live then Ian? where were you because you know that's well, I, was, I was i was i was living i was living in kingston Okay, yeah, at the yeah. time, so I used to travel up the A3, yes, uh, straight into the top of Wandsworth, and then black through Wandsworth, and then up to Clapham. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got tugged. I got tugged a few times on the A3 as well. Right when I got a big sports bike, which uh, was <laughs> I wouldn't even tell those stories. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Probably. Yeah. That was a different time of policing, wasn't it? When uh, if you did that today, you'd probably get sacked, wouldn't you? But uh... do, you, do you know what? I, I I think now, and and I think of the new recruits, and I'm sure we might come on to this. And I just think we leave the police at thirty because we want our pension mostly. Mm. But the experience you've got, I've got, ninety nine percent of you know your listeners have got. You come to the stage where what am I now going to do? And you disappear overnight because you want your pension, don't you? You want that lump sum, you've got a mortgage right. to pay off, or you know, you've got you've got debts or whatever it's likely to be. Yeah. But what we've got still to give at that stage, particularly for these new people, you know, that are coming in, is you know, yeah. it's you, you can't buy what people have got. You know, some of your um podcasters, um, your you know, your guests. The experience they've got and did they yeah they wanted to leave for the money but in actual fact a lot of them have still got ties to the police and yeah we utilize that in. yeah de- definitely you, definitely no i don't yeah. get it no i think yeah, i think you're right i think i mean put, don't get me wrong would i have wanted to stay after my 30 um probably not well i mean it's the it's the whole you start to lose money don't you that's the reality your pension starts to lose value so that's the reason why most people leave but um, you know, 100%, we need to harness the knowledge and experience of a lot of the people who've left, but who would like to put something back into yeah. policing, yeah. Yeah. you know, but, but without being tied to um, all the rules and regs. And, you know, um, yeah. need, I think there must be, there must be some way that they can, um, 
you know, you think about what's going on at the moment where the statistic I heard the other day was that something like a third of the entire police workforce now in England and Wales has got something less than three years service, you know, which is, which is shocking, isn't it? And, um, you know, so anyway, um, yeah, there needs to, we need to, I think we need to think outside the box, as they say, to try and find ways of, um, I mean, I would definitely go back in a sort of a part-time capacity to sort of do some hand-holding and sort of put, you know what I mean? Put my arm around the shoulder of, of, of maybe newly promoted sergeants or inspectors and just go right um you know what are you struggling with um you know what what are your you know because there's so many everything that they're going to describe you've seen it all you've seen it mm. all you know mm. but anyway let's not right let's, yeah. let's about let's get on back to you again um yeah. so you're at Chiswick you're kind of periodically dropping in the shit yeah and um so what happens next um one of the football team gives me a pull one day you can see I'm down and he says look um, forget about what you're doing now. And he said, look, the future is come in the department, you know, concentrate on crime, da-di-da-di-da. You know, I hadn't thought about it and I was taking each day as it came. And he said, and he gave me a little um, tip to stand somewhere the next day and pull a car. And I did pull that car and it had a load of jewellery in the boot and the geezer was wanted for a couple of bits and pieces. And it sort of started from there, really. You know, I interviewed mm-hmm. him, kept me with him through the process. And uh, within about three or four months, I went on what was then the Beat Crime Squad. I don't know if you had it at your nick. Yeah, yeah. Was a small team run by an old boy sergeant that was a lovely guy, but he got me into gambling every morning. He'd be reading The Sport in Life. You know, that's what's that you're reading. I'll, I'll come with me at lunchtime and we'll go we'll go down to Billy Hills and put a couple of bets on. And uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, that's another story. So I went on Beat Crimes, which was investigating theft of motor vehicles, theft from motor vehicles, sort of the lower end of crime, So which was taken away from the department. Um, and that was sort of a, um, a step up to a gun on the crime squad. And after, I think, about... So that, so that was a plain clothes role, you know. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to go plain clothes, I would. If I wanted to wear the uniform, I would. And then about 18 months in, I got on the district crime squad. After right. Not 18, when I was confirmed. I had to be confirmed in probation. And we had the district crime squads then, which was the best thief takers from mm. Nick went, you know, mm. the crime squad. So I went on that, which was based out at Felton. Um, and for me, Ian, it wasn't hard to be a good thief taker at a quiet place like Chizzy. So yeah. that was to my advantage, really. Yeah. Because um, there wasn't, you know, that many people that were out nicking people, probably the same as you. There was a core amount of people. Mm. to nick two people per shift, really. Yeah. Nick one, you know, in those days, you put a person in, in the cells and they stayed for as long as the CID wanted them to. They used yeah. to be big. Did you have the PAS person at station? So if you were bailed... It was a PAS form and it was on a big binder, you know, like right. that in three size. And, you know, they just get put in the cells and CID would deal with them when they wanted to deal with them. Yeah, this is pre, so presumably this is pre, pre-PACE then. Pre-PACE in the uh, early 80s, yeah. So um, so I got on the district crime squad and then I went for my CID board fairly young, very young really, and I got it and I was... Um, Went on my CID course, and now I was posted to Harrow Road, Delta Romeo. Um, oh, okay. Do you have a brother? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother I was. Think I, he I, might have been there. My brother, was... my brother was Harold Rudd. Yeah, he was there. Yeah. Probably a bit later than that. I think he was there about eighty-seven, something like that. Yeah, I, I might still have been. You know, dates. Uh, I, I was there for three or four years, four years maybe, and it was when ten brand new DCs were sent to DR. Right. DR, you, you know where it is on the edge yeah, of yeah. the hill. But prisoners used to scream in the back of the van, don't take me to to Harrow Road. Don't take me to Harrow Road. You know, it was... This is ridiculous, it was, isn't it? worked for us because, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that they were, you know, had their noses across their face when I opened the cell doors in the morning. But it worked for, to our advantage as detectives because we'd say, we don't get on with them either. You know, what's happened? I did that. And it would be a, a yeah. to them, you know. But it was non-stop dealing with prisoners, non-stop, yeah. non-stop investigations dealing with prisoners. Yeah. But we would race in, Ian, in the morning. The, the night duty CID officer, there'd be a, a DC or DS and an aide. And, you know, if, if you're night duty at Harrow Road, God knows what you dealt with, but you yeah. pride, pride yourself in not handing prisoners over the next day. Right. Know what I mean, so the night you OB would dealt with this, dealt with that, and you'd have to type it out before you went home, stick it in a binder, an A4 binder. Detectives would come in in the morning to see what was left for them. Yeah, but the teams used to rush in to sign for the prisoners because they wanted to deal with them. It was money, it was yeah. overtime. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was a really busy office, very social office. And at five o'clock, there was three DIs and they'd open the bar in the Pips Club, which was their office. So they had big double grey cabinets. You remember those? The yeah. metal ones. And every single day of our life, the bar would open in the CID office, in the DI's office. Every... So you'd graft, 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 and no matter what you're doing, you had to come and have a, you know, a drink, whether it was one glass or whatever. It's mad, and isn't it? It's mad. A, a detective was um, assigned to the DCI. Take him out for a drink at lunchtime, and he could drink between ten and twelve pints of, you know, Fuller's whatever, and then someone would take him home. It was, you know, that was that was just, yeah. Well, I can remember, I can remember, um, you know, a chief superintendent, my very first chief superintendent, was it chief superintendent? I think it might have been superintendent actually, rolling into the station office, absolutely smashed off his face and roaring and shouting at people and um, needing and, and the sergeant, one of the sergeants kind of could see that it was all going to kick off, you know, with the superintendent. And uh, he uh, literally, um, you know, ushered him, ushered him out of the office because this is in front of members of the public, for God's sake. And uh, <laughs> ushered him out of the office and stuck him in a car and got, one of the PCs to drive them home, you know? And the thing is, this is what you need to remember is that people talk about, um, you know, bad behavior as if it's a, a new thing. It's like bad behavior in the police or any organization for that matter is nothing new, is it? No, no. But, but you know, night duty. So your night duty CID in, and a couple of detectives have gone out drinking. You drove them home. Yeah. And somebody took their car. The aide would drive their car. Yeah. On their drive or outside their house, they'd be put in the house. They'd wake up with their car next to them. People go, "We didn't." Yeah, we did it every night if somebody wanted, because that's the connection we had with our team. Do you know what I mean? It was. Yeah, I hey, know. Is, is that I bad? Know. Yeah, you're not I supposed know. to go off your patch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But was it keeping a team together? Was it, you know, you you know yourself. 
in the police, we are as fickle as anything. If someone drops in the shit mm. properly, mm. one contacts them. Maybe one or two people contact them. You know, yeah. whereas the camaraderie and the um, closeness in the army, they stick together, whatever, don't they? You know, I know, yeah. I know yeah. people that are, you know from twenty five years ago are still in touch on on a weekly basis. So. Yeah, I know. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's the reality is it's it's not a job like any other job. And uh, whilst people could sort of say, well, that's outrageous, you know, drinking in the office or whatever. And, and yes, it doesn't it doesn't happen now, obviously. Um, but there's probably a reason why people do that kind of stuff, isn't it? Because it's a bloody stressful job and um, yeah. and it's a very, very unpleasant job frequently, isn't it? And you deal with some very unpleasant people who have done some pretty unpleasant things. So um but anyway, I say it's a, we could talk all day about um, police culture. But uh, so, so obviously, you're well on your way to becoming a sort of experienced detective. Yeah. And um, so, let's talk about what took you down the route that sort of ended up with you becoming an undercover officer. Well, I, I had some back back in then. You ran your own informants as well, Ian. So you'd register mm. them, but you ran them. You know, there was no source unit, which again is a another bugbear. But um, for various reasons. The uh, informant route went down a, a different line. But I ran my own informants, um, did payments with them, you know, through the correct channels. Mm. So I had some good um, nickings, arrests and seizures and stuff like that as a result of it. Um, so it meant you had a rapport with people. I was mm. going to Crown Court and giving evidence regularly. You'd mm. um, present your own cases at, at magistrate's court. So mm. all of that fear around courts, which it is, if you don't get a little bit nervous before you go in the witness box, mm. you've, uh, you're not yeah. doing something right. So I was learning that, and then I, I, I had an approach, you know, to mm. say, you know, you know who you are, da-da-da-da-da, the sort of thing, somebody that I didn't even know too much of anything about undercover work. And um, said, you know, we're interested in you becoming a UC. And um, you're going to get an interview, da-da-da-da-da. And I went up there to the the yard thinking, you know, I'm chocolate. They want me. I had long hair down my back, you know, a ponytail. I thought it was God's gift to everything. Hmm. Uh, and I went in there and made a complete fool of myself, you know, got shoved out the door with a tail between my legs. So this is S. So this is SO10. This is SO10, yeah, which was very, very little known about it back back in the day. So for people listening who don't understand what that means, um, specialist operations SO is the part of Scotland Yard that deals with all of that specialist crime. So there's different SO departments. So SO1, I think, is that international stuff, isn't it? And SO11 surveillance, SO12, yes. my old department special branch, which no longer exists. So 13, which is the anti-terrorist branch, and so SO10 yeah. was the undercover and covert policing side of things, wasn't it? Yeah, so it dealt with undercover policing and informants, you know, mm. there was two sides to it. Um, so off I go, back to doing my DC work yeah. at Arrow Road, and then got asked to come up again and went up, was successful in the interview, um, right. and then went up my undercover course, yeah. Okay, so just uh, just go back. Um, the, so why do you think you screwed up so badly first time round? I just didn't have a clue about undercover policing. I thought they wanted me. You know, the naivety of you know, young twenty odd year old fella went up there, thought I was great as a copper. You know, thought I was mm. the business, which I wasn't. I had so much to learn. Mm. Um, someone's asked me to go on a this this unit. You know, it's it's a done deal. 
But it was, I think it was a kick up the ass that they wanted me to have as well. Right. You know, cut your flashness. Yeah. You know, they could probably see that you the big had, boys now. Yeah. You could, they could probably see that you had the raw material, but you needed yeah. to be cut down to size a little bit. Absolutely did. Absolutely needed my, you know, to be cut at the knees, which they did very, very well. Um, mm. and up there the next time with a totally different attitude. And um, he actually did some. Successful. He actually did some preparation. In other words, did some prep, and it was straight into a role play. <laughs> who, who knew? Who knew? Eh, that doing a bit of preparation before a board yeah. might pay dividends. Eh, but in actual fact, in the prep for my um, interview, I couldn't have prepared for it. You know, the first question, the first role play. Right, you're in role now. You're a paedophile. There's a, there was a telly in the office in the DCI's office. He said. I'm the baddie. There's, um, I'm watching some uh, a video on there, and um, a twelve-year-old boy's been interfered with by da 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 da, and he goes to unzip his trousers and you know to get his manhood out, and uh, mm -hmm. he says, "What are you going to do now?" You know, I hadn't planned for that. I got to tell you, <laughs> there was no prep for that. So oh, I looked God. at the telly, looked at him, looked at the telly, looked at him, and I said, "That's I like that fucking." Old man getting his dick out does nothing for me. Put that away and let's see how much I can buy that for. And he said, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, you know, along those lines. You couldn't have prepped for that. So, yeah. And this uh, is the thing, isn't it? It's worth just making this point, isn't it? That um, there's undercover work that touches on a huge range of different policing areas, isn't it? It's not It's not all about um, going and buying a gun or a bag of drugs it, there could be fine art and antiques. It could be uh, paedophile and sexual abuse. It could be, you know, um, you know, expensive cars. You need to, you know, the people yeah. who need to know everything there is to know about, um, you know, how to how to chop up an expensive Mercedes and sell the parts and all that stuff, isn't it? Uh, you're absolutely right. You know, the the range of you know. Um, things that you can buy, you know, purchase, acquire, whatever, that there's there's no limit to it. But I do think, Ian, the whole thing is, can you talk to people? You know, talking to you now, mm. I talk to the bad guys. Mm. If you're pretending to be someone, you get caught out with, with within no time. Yeah. Um, and I think that's it. You know, if you can talk to most people, you're going to be all right in the UC world. First job I did was bank bearer bonds for the City of London. What did I know about those? I don't even know what they are, quite honestly. I, to, to, be, to be honest, to this day, I don't know what they, <laughs> they are. But I was going in and, you know, I had a surveillance team from the city. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, Ian. Really? So Paddy took me to a house in the city, um, went into the flat, came out with some paperwork. I gave him some money. thought, you know, we'll get back to where he's going to drop me off. And he counted the money and he went... I see what you've done there. You've tested me. You, you give me too much money. So right. I, I've just given him one. Go on there. I've, I've got the goods. Go. So he said, that's clever. That's clever. You're testing me out. So we went all the way back to the thing. And he went back up, got some more bearer bonds and gave them to me. So for the surveillance team, they thought it was unbelievable. How did you do that? Because did you know we'd lost you? I didn't know what day of the week it was, Ian. Do you know what I mean? I just wanted to get out of there. So yeah. they re-found re us, found the address, and I had this these, this paperwork in my hand, mm -hmm. which is exactly what they wanted. So, yeah. So let's so let's talk about the training for a little bit. Um, obviously, as I say to 
everyone who's worked in these kind of you know, sensitive roles. We won't disclose anything that's going to drop you or me in the shit. Um, so, uh, but we'll sort of talk about, you know, things in general terms or stuff that's in the public domain, really, I suppose. Um, so how did you find the course? How did you find the training course? That found it difficult. Obviously, there's people, um, there's two courses just for your listeners, FBAN Training Court and the Amiga course up in Manchester, or there right. were two courses. And Customs, the church used to run their own course as well, um, Customs and Excise. Um, so, yeah, I went on the SO10 course and there was people from all over the country. I think we had one international student. There was always international students on those courses. Right. So you had students, Ian, and you had observers at the back of the room mm-hmm. learning how to run undercover jobs. Right. So although they didn't take part in the course in London, yeah. they did take part in the course in Manchester because they had an active role. In London, it yeah. was listening, taking everything on board, watching all the scenarios, the operations. Um, in Manchester, they had a hands-on rolling, running, running um, the undercover officer that was out deployed. So it was tough, yeah. all um, very real, very mm. well presented. The instructors were um, honest to, you know, every degree because they had to be, and the mm. attrition rate was huge. Yeah, mm-hmm. huge. and so um, very and fortunate and, to get through. And just on that point about the fact that um, undercover policing you know, goes into all sorts of different areas of criminality. Um, presumably you had students on that course who, who who would not have been suitable to go in to deal with, you know, serious, you know, blaggers and villains, but but would have been, you know, suitable to go into other well, areas of life. It's but... interesting. Back then, I think it was more that you were a villain that was going to go into everything. You had the odd one or two that might specialise in paedophile, work mm. particularly mm. a couple of foreign speakers back then the english was their second language mm. that had particular um linguistic skills but the core of them back then ian were yeah a bit worrying isn't it whenever the instructor turns around and says to you, you know what you'd be brilliant at you'd be brilliant at being a paedophile i'm not sure how to take <laughs> how, to, how to take that see, you know it'd be I like what are, what are you trying to say i mean i'm really happy <laughs> i'm really happy that i passed the course but i'm not so happy that everybody thinks i'm a paedophile you know but that work ian do you know what i for all the kilos and kilos of drugs that i've been seized one of them instead is worth you know a million times a while oh yeah oh yeah definitely and there were some some guys that specialized in that work that were outstanding you know one of my best um he's dead now rest his soul um he specialized in pedophile work after doing lots of undercover work um was next merchant navy guy, and the work he did was just incredible. You know, the number of lives that he saved, young children's lives, by putting some serious paedophiles away was incredible. You know. Oh, I know, I know. But, it's uh, it's it's mad, isn't it? It's mad. Yeah. But uh, so so obviously you passed the course, and um, and then you. Uh, how long was it before you got your sort of first deployment? I went out almost immediately. I was very lucky because. Um, Back then, the DCI that ran it had one of his rules were you had to be a detective or an experienced, you know, cross-examination in the witness box at ground court. So yeah. you could stand up, you know. Um, I, I once spent five days, five full days in the witness box at the Old Bailey, non-stop for eight hours a day. 
um, in, in my service. So there's nothing prepares you for that. You know, you just don't yeah. know what's coming next, do you? Yeah, so yeah. it's a big thing for him to have that experience. So um, I, I suppose I was quite well known as a detective then. Right. Um, and yeah. I, I was called on to a job by a very experienced guy from the city of London. Mm. Um, and that was the bearer bonds job. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, luckily yeah. through... And I'll always remember the day of the arrest. So we did that day that um, I, I, I told you about, you know, where I messed it all up and we had to go back for a revisit. Mm. But we, we, we went back into the baddies and I'll always remember the day of the arrest was on the highway. I'm in East London, just over Tower Bridge as it goes mm. out east. Yeah. And I don't know why, but we, um, we uh, did the arrest at about five o'clock. So it was car to car traffic there. Mm. And, <laughs> The plan back then used to be was when the police come, you run. You run. So mm. the police come, I leg it, and I was fit as a flea, you know, back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm running down the highway towards Tower Bridge with a City of London fella chasing me. Well, I thought he'd just chase me for 100 yards, stop and give up. Yeah. No, he didn't. So what are people doing? <laughs> people in their cars are coming out, joining him to chase me. <laughs> so I've got people chasing me down the highway, and this was not in the plan at all. So yeah, but so that that was a successful first job. Um, so there's an interesting one there about um, where you work when you first get deployed geographically, isn't there? Because um, and we had this conversation with Shay Doyle um, on the previous podcast, where rather unusually uh, he came from, you know. Uh, Manchester and he was deployed into Moss Side which in today's world which would never happen um, you would always be deployed somewhere well away probably from where you've actually worked as a as a police officer um, or more particularly where you grew up um, so to what extent was that a consideration when you first started in the uh, UC world? I, I think London is a different kettle of fish, and you can live in central London three three roads away from somebody and never bump into them in your life. Mm. And also in London, the job might be East London based with the first villain that you go into, but you end up out at Heathrow meeting somebody else. So it's very difficult mm. to pitch that. But I think in places like Manchester, it's very parochial, isn't it? You know, mm, mm. It, it's a different kettle of fish. And I think the problem is you're supposed to self-risk assess. Yeah, I can't do that job. Well, the number of UCs, and I was involved in training in the last, uh, you know, last 15 years of my UC service. I did the, I ran the uh, London course, you know, as one of the leading instructors and also the Manchester course. And we mm. also taught all over the world. We took our UC course all over Eastern Europe. Mm. Um, you know, we trained most of the Albanians, you know, so we were very fortunate. I, I was very fortunate in, you know, the experience I took on a course and, and you know, the people that I trained. Yeah. But you're supposed to say, no, I can't do that job. But the reality is, Ian, if you go and ask somebody, they want to do that job. Do you know what I mean? Well, they certainly mm. did back then. Yeah. I think the risk assessment's far more detailed now. The, um, you know, duty of care issues, Mm. Uh, it, it it shouldn't happen anymore. It shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't say it's it, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, and certainly, um, you know, as you know, I mean, there's there's lots that we can talk about in terms of your UC career, but 
certainly the the big thing isn't it when is when you come out of that world then is the is paranoia rules i mean certainly i know a lot of ex uh undercover officers who i used to work with um who are more involved in this sort of uh, extremism uh yeah. political, political extremism side of things and frequently you would go out with them you know for beers or something and they would just kind of disappear <laughs> <laughs> you'd, you'd turn around and they're just gone and be like where's he he was it where's he gone and then right. you'd ring him up and go uh i said where, where the fuck are you and he'd say sorry mate i spotted someone who i knew from a previous life and they had to thin out you know yeah, um, yeah. Or, or you know and 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 that must be very difficult i think when you're out just doing your thing out shopping or just wandering around, getting petrol, and you see someone who you think, eh, is that yeah. is is that so and so? If it is, have they seen me? Yeah. Um, if they have seen me, is this just a, a casual bumping into, or is it someone who's actually having a proper look at me? Yeah. But it's that proper paranoia, isn't it? Well, uh, you know, I did twenty-two years undercover, and. 17, 16 of them were full-time. So your listeners there, back, back in the 80s, there was no full-time UCs. You'd do undercover work as, you know, as a part-time job. So you'd do your day job hmm. and the phone would ring and you might do overtime, you know, or a couple of days if your DI or DCI let you go in an undercover role. Um, but after I'd gone on the um, regional crime squad, I went from Harrow Road to nine region crime squad. Mm. which was, you know, the, the uh, us up against the biggest, baddest drug dealers in London and the southeast. you know. Mm -hmm. it, it was hardcore. Mm. It was, you know, when drugs were exploding in London, cocaine and pills mm. and whatever. Mm. Um, so I went there and, um, you know, I was doing part-time UC work. And then I went from there on promotion um, to Battersea and then onto the Flying Squad. Right, so, that's an interesting one. So you're you're effectively still. I mean, I know I know this happened, but again, going back to that point about not wanting to expose yourself unnecessarily to people who you may end up bumping into in an undercover deployment. I mean, to what extent were you worried that working on something like, particularly something like the Flying Squad, you know, where you're going to be potential we were you deliberately kept away from no, face, not, face to face not. interaction with these people no like not at all like you know, I, I, it was you know i was a ds leading the team uh, on the flying squad um more more, more of a problem was the nine regional crime squad because you were dealing with the biggest baddest drug dealers in the southeast they were you know right. if i compared nine regional crime squad to the flying squad for me my experience was nine regional crime squad were dealing with bigger badder people mm. did when I was on the flying squad, but that was just, you know, at the time. Mm. Other offices, Tower Bridge Flying Squad, you know, dealt with some amazing, you know, villains at that time. Mm. Um, but I was having a war with, I was a DS running a team, an important team on the flying squad. Um, and the DCI didn't like me, didn't like undercover work, thought it was a load of nonsense. Mm. And it was sort of a recipe for disaster. I was doing a job out in Holland, at the time that I disappeared for four or five days, um, mm. doing Holland, come back, work doubly as hard on the flying squad, trying to make up, you know, them thinking, oh, he's swanning about again. Mm. Um, and it, it, you know, all of that, 
he's a recipe for disaster at home, isn't it? You know, mm, mm. four kids, you know. Four, I'm sorry, many kids? Four. Four, yeah. Bloody um, when I say I have four kids, my wife, you know, who had to deal with them all the time, how she, Ian, until this, until I left the police and two, maybe two years after leaving the police, it's not until then that I realised what a knob I was really, you know, how mm. selfish I was. Yeah. How I had no idea what was mm. happening at home. And I mean, no idea. Yeah. Um, I'd go off on a Monday, you know, going back to the regional crime squad, you always had an overnight bag because you never knew in the country where you'd be. Yeah. You know, two or three nights, she was holding a, you know, a baby here. There was one barely crawling and off I go. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting because, you know, and I'm sure a lot of you, oh, I was not the best dad in the world. And mm. you know, I, I think about it every day, but I've got mm. grandkids now in and I'm mm. trying my best mm. to put back in now. What yeah, doing, yeah. You know? and, and it's it's interesting. Yes, I was doing an amazing, selfish, interesting, exciting job. But it's no different from someone that sits in an office. And I know people like this in a normal job that will sit there till nine o'clock at night because they don't want to go home. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. We, we've I've talked about this previously, but it's a really interesting point that you're making. Is that a lot of people in the police in these sorts of roles will justify their absence or their crapness as a partner, husband, dad, wife mother whatever on the basis that the job i'm doing is really really important nobody understands just how important it is my job's the most important job in the world and the whole world will stop spinning yeah. on its axis if i'm not there you know and that's the justification that people use isn't it um and i mean i was watching that, that sas um uh rogue heroes the thing yeah. bbc and i was thinking i was watching that thinking um you know, we all we all kind of um, hero worship people in these organisations, don't we? For good reason, for good yeah. reason, because yeah. they do some incredible stuff. But on a personal level, a lot of these people are probably a bloody nightmare to be in a relationship with or to, you know, the, the, you know, look at someone like Paddy Main, for example, uh, who is, you know, a, a hero uh, to many people, um, yeah. you know, uh, including myself in many ways, because as a, as a fellow Ulsterman, um, of course, but but he was probably arguably a psychopath, actually, you know, and, um, you know, so the point is that we, yeah. we kind of put these people on a bit of a pedestal, don't we? Um, but uh, what you've just described about your feeling of guilt about how you were as a father is probably very, very common, isn't it, for the people who work in these sort of units? Do you think? I, I think so. Um my partner, and he was my best friend in the world, we spent every day of our life together for 20 years. No longer speaks to me since I wrote the book. Um, he had no kids until later in life. So I had four, he had none, and we did everything together. You know, mm -hmm. um, him and I um, set up the long-term deep infiltration unit in London. So at, we were full-time undercovers as the supervisors and undercover officers, and we had eight people on our team. So mm. we went, the Met went full time. We were one of the first that were, you know, at a deep infiltration unit. Mm. We ran that for years, but I don't know. I, I blame myself 
because all the time, because I was so selfish and so selfish. But why does it take so long for us to, re you want someone to shake you really, don't you? You know, yeah, to... but I don't think, do you think, do you think you would have actually listened if someone had actually said that to you at that stage of your life? No, because, you know, uh, and I, the, the, the thing that, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to talk about these sort of issues. Um, we, we had to go to the psychologist four times a year, had to go, you know, to get the tick that you're, you know, you're not biting your hand off, you're not, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not crazy. But, you know, my first psycho, and I think we were paying then £150 an hour for us to go, you know, tell her, for them to tell us that we're sane and off you go. And um, she cried twice during my sessions. I was listening to her about her relationship with her brother, how terrible it was. And what she, the psychologist was telling you? Psychologist, about. yeah. <laughs> I promise you. And she cried twice during my sessions. <laughs> When Sorry, I, I, shouldn't, was, I shouldn't laugh, but it's, it's not. But she was you know, a lovely, lovely old, lady. Probably old-fashioned, but that's probably not the way it should work, should it? Oh, no, but my, my um, <laughs> ex-wife used to say, you know, we'd be sat at, on a Saturday night and all our friends, we lived in quite a nice part in Surrey. We had a very small house because we had four kids and we didn't have much money. And all these other people were in oil accountancy. And they all went to, my kids all went to the same Catholic school as theirs. They all used to send their kids to the best Catholic school um, as primary school, but because they had money, once they finished there, they all went to private school because this was one of the best schools in the area. Anyway, yeah. I'd be sat around the dinner table and I'd be sat next to, I don't know, Mrs. 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 Smith next to me. And in the car going home, I'd say, did you know that about her? She told me this, that and the other. And she said, I've known her four years. And she never told me any of that. <laughs> How did she tell you all of that? You know, an hour and a half, and I said, I don't know. Was you know, I suppose that was part. I'm quite a good listener. You know, mm. I, I like to talk a lot, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so um, if it's not a personal, too too much of a personal question, have you kind of explored all of that stuff with your four kids now? Sort of and sort of try. I mean, how are they about all of that now? Is there a have you do you feel that that is something that sort of really damaged your relationship or? Do you feel uh, that you've made been able to sort of, it, you it's know, difficult because my wife, um, my ex-wife, is was the nicest person in the world, literally. Do you know, mm. I'm the kindest, you know, the best mum, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. So, um, her and I get on very well now. Mm. Um, some of the kids have had kids, so I do immerse myself in that and try and be a better yeah. person and a better, you know. Um, but yeah, I suppose I haven't really got down to the nitty gritty. Sometimes some of those conversations I've had, mm. I suppose I'm trying to not run away from it, but yeah, deal yeah. with it a different way. I don't know, Ian. You know, yeah, it's a tricky one. I isn't know it? what I was and what I wasn't, and I wasn't a good dad. Luckily, yeah. a fantastic mum. But the very fact, the very fact, what I'd, I'm going to be, I'm going to sound like a writing knob now, aren't I? But I'm going to put my hospice head on now um, and say that the very fact that you're acknowledging that um, is you're kind of halfway there, aren't you? I think it's for, it's for people. I think people who are kind of in denial about that stuff, um, I think it's going to it would make it very difficult to have those sort of conversations, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I, I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, I, uh, it all dawned on me that about five years ago, they found a lump in my throat 
Mm. I went for, I, I, I had a day sick in 27 years in the police, mm. but, you know, similar to a lot of people in those squads that yeah. want to miss a day. And, uh, you know, my voice, I was like Ray Winston times 10. I couldn't, you know, people couldn't understand what I was saying. So mm. um, my partner said, you've got to go to the doctors. And I said, I'm not wasting their time. So I went to the doctor and there was a lovely young um, doctor who said, how long have you been like this? And I said, about a year now. And she said, you're going straight to hospital now. Mm. I said, oh, I've got, you know, I've got to go and do something. Mm. The hospital and uh, they said, you're on the cancer pathway. You're going for your pre-op now. You know, and really knew it, you, you know, and within seven days I was operated on and they took a lump out of my throat. But that was a big awakening for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was going to bring is coming back to the kids. Mm. That was quite a, you know, a, 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 a big moment to go, well, mm. you know, had we disconnected with dad, had we not disconnected with dad, you know, my, my partner had to phone him up and say, look, he's had a lump cut out of his throat. We're not, we weren't going to tell you about it. He's going to be all right. Um, bloody, bloody. Mm. So, um, again, that was a rude awakening for, mm. for me and, you know, how uh, yeah. difficult some situations can be. But Yeah, yeah definitely. Definitely. Um, so, in terms of your UC career, yeah. um, it, it's... Judging from, I've sort of, I've kind of dipped into your book. Um, by the way, let's give your book a plug quickly. Um, so, um, yeah, give your book a plug. Yeah, it's done, it's done well, isn't it? Uh, well, the whole thing about, I never wanted to write a book. You know, t p people are different. And I've heard you talking to, um, is it John Sutherland about, mm. you know, writing books. So yeah. my story isn't just for those people that, you know, think that I, you know, I wanted to write a book to um, promote myself. Um, a friend of mine, is the advisor on suspects the program? I don't know if you've ever watched. Oh this yeah, yeah. Seasons and um, I've kn I'd known him. We were on the, our DC's course or DS's course together, and he does some advising for TV programs. And he said a production um, company wanted to do an undercover um, program. He mm -hmm. said I've never bullshitted them. Um, I know you know I've done a couple of dips in and out with UC jobs. Um, when you come and speak to them. Mm -hmm. And he said, they'll pay you £350 a day in expenses. <laughs> and I said, why not? Just tell them my name's Joe. Mm. So I went up there. And Have you been to any of these production companies? No, no. So you know what the shithole offices in London police stations are like, you know, yeah, yeah. where I've been used to. So I go in there, and it's fantastic, swanky offices off Tottenham Court Road. And I go in there and there's all these young people buzzing about and there's a basketball net in there and there's table <laughs> tennis. Do you know what I mean? I'm going, Jesus, what's this? And an open plan cafe. And it was like literally the opposite end of the spectrum. And we went into this room with all these clever, you know, young people and there was whiteboards all the way around and they were going, right, ideas were undercover. What, what you got, what you got? And they're all, no ideas too small. So I just sat there. And about two hours later, this, you know, clever young girl said, and um, but the elephant in the room, me, and said, Joe, what do you think? And I went, you know what? I said, I've got this idea of a scrap metal yard. I said, the dad's a career criminal. His son is gay, but his dad doesn't know. He's a private school. The mm. undercover officer's befriended, you know, is in, in with the dad. Mm. And the son's taken, you know, his relationship with the undercover is stronger than with his dad. He's told him all sorts of things. 
Mm. And, you know, what's going to happen now? Because the dad's going to get nicked. He's going to get betrayed. And they went, fucking hell, where did that come from? (laughs) They're like scribing away. So Evan's like, would you do me a favour, Joe? Will you go away and just write some of your, you know? So we'll pay you, you know, we'll pay you 350 pounds. So I went away, just literally, Ian, I type with one finger. (laughs) promise you, one Mm. finger. So I typed some things that I, you know, was involved in, changed them up a bit, emailed them off. They said, um, about a week later, you come up and see us. So I said, yeah, we'll pay you. You know, <laughs> those words that always followed. So I went up there and there was about four or five people in this in this office and um, a girl came in and they said, look, we're doing a collaboration with um, Random House on um, emerging writers, mm. so, you know. And um, this this girl said, I introduced herself. She said, I've read some of your stuff. I really like it. Mm. Um, would you be interested in writing a few books? Mm-hmm. And I promise you, I said, is this fucking wind up? <laughs> I promise you. So she said, no, I really like, you know. The... So I had never had an inclination to write a book. Never thought I could, never, whatever. Mm-hmm. So they said, what you need is an agent. And they went, see this guy? He's one of the best agents. He's only, a, you know, tube right away. Yeah. So I phoned him up and said, this geezer called Joe Carr is going to come and see you. So I, I always remember, I had my flat cap on, I had a Crombie coat on a scarf, it was winter. And I went into this fella's office and um, he was stood up at a computer and I thought, that's a bit weird. So I knocked on, the door was open, but I knocked and he pressed a button and the computer went like... Zzz. And just disappeared, and there he was, stood. And I went, Jesus, can you do that again? I've never seen anything like it. And he looked at me, he's by two heads. He said, what? He said, how did you do that? So he presses his butt, goes back up and disappears. And he goes, you must be Joe Carter. I said, I am. So he sat down and he said, look, I've spoken to them over there. Um, You don't need an agent. He said, I can take 25% off you now. You don't need an agent. I know what they're going to offer you, a three-book contract and a six-part TV drama. Mm. But you need a brief. This is the best brief that I know. So I then went to see a brief. So I had no inclination ever to do any of that. And yeah. I did every single word with one finger, 25,000 <laughs> words with one finger, Ian. I'm not the sharpest. And in one of my... Um, <laughs> I love reviews because I love the worst ones. My my partner gets the unwed worst. But, you know, it's like fishing chips. Some people like it. Some well, it's like it. it's like an act of uh, pure masochism reading those, though, isn't it? I just well, one day you're 499th in the world in books, and the next day you're 15,000. You know, whatever it might be. So it's all it, it doesn't matter to me. But you know, I'm not too precious over it. So I wrote the book on my own with one finger. Literally, no ghostwriter, nothing. And that probably, you'll probably notice that. There's no professionalism around it. I put it together exactly as I did old school. Yeah. Up and saw my editor. It went to a legal edit. Mm-hmm. You know, to, I don't know if you, if you had the same in where it's paginated and in there says, is there any comeback with what you've said about this, Pete? You know, you replied to it. But basically, mm-hmm. Ian, mm-hmm. one finger wrote that whole book. And there was not, you know, um, 
I was supported in as much as the Met didn't want me to write the book and they, you know, as they always do, we're going to sue you, we're going to da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, my um, my publishing house said, is there any problem with this book? And I said, I would never, mm. ever, you know, put anyone at risk. You know, that's one of my... So, you know, we stuck stuck very strong. Um, the publishing house, the uh, head head of law there was fantastic. Yeah. And we just published the book. And the Met said, no problem. Brilliant. So the book's called Undercover, A True Story by Joe Carter. And uh, you got a nice little mention from Joe Pistone, uh, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, uh, the FBI's most famous UC. And he says, this is the best expose of life as a British undercover cop ever written. Joe Carter is a friend of ours in inverted commas. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, well done you. And uh, I'm under no illusion how I know how tricky and uh, difficult it is to to write a book, never mind get it published. So, yeah, well done you. And it's got some great reviews, hasn't it? Thank you very much, Ian, and the, and the same for you. It's interesting how people's book writing goes down different paths. So it's quite interesting, isn't it, talking to how some people self-publish some. You know, I was just very, very lucky. Yeah. That's all I can say. Yeah. Uh, well, you had a really, really fascinating story to tell, didn't you, as well? So so just so getting on to the fascinating story then, um, being, a, being a, a UC, so obviously um, having dipped into your book, um, it was a it was the serious crime side of things, obviously, that you were predominantly involved in, wasn't yeah. it? Predominantly yeah. dr- drugs, uh, drug importation, mm-hmm. large amounts of cash, um, all of that kind of stuff. So just describe what what is it like to be um, put into a situation where you are having to uh, pass yourself off as a major criminal with all of the risks uh, involved with having to do that? Um, do you know what? I think a lot of people will think, you know, that's so difficult. That is tough. That is, I couldn't do it. But I think a lot of people could. It's just about being yourself. Most criminals, and a lot of police officers can't get their head around this, are nice people, Ian. 80% of their world is normal. They've got kids. They've got bills. They watch EastEnders. Do you know what I mean? They rush home sometimes for a match of the day. They're normal people that have got normal problems. So if you are yourself and you can come across as a criminal and you've got knowledge of drugs, you know how to talk about gear and this, Mm. that and the other, and you're relaxed, it came quite natural to me. And, I, you know, I'm not trying to be big-headed there. Some people are good at shooting. They go to the shooting range more, you know, always hit, uh, you know, 90, 98%. I found it quite quite easy to talk to bad guys. Maybe it was because of my experience with um, informants. Mm. I'd spent lots and lots of time with decent criminals who were um, informants. Um, but I found it quite easy. And mm. A lot of my work was, you know, um, for 15 years, I was a full-time undercover officer. I wasn't dipping in and out. I was mm. full-time. And yeah. um, I ran the undercover unit in London with a, a, another DS. And we went all over the world here. You know, SO10 mm. deployed all over the world. And mm. yeah, undercover officers from all over the world come and deploy with us. Mm. Um, and you gained experience off other people, just like, you know, in normal places, you go, I'd never do what he did over there, yeah. but I'll do what she did there. I really like you picked up yeah, yeah. bits as you went along. Yeah. 
I think the thing that really um, intrigues me is the fact you can't just rock up, can you? You're not just going to rock up and suddenly no. suddenly expect to be everyone's best buddy. No. Um, you, that process of um, building your credibility and trust is going to take a long time, isn't it? Um, so talk us through kind of without disclosing any kind of trade secrets, so to speak. Um, how long typically would you take before you're ready to sort of really get that absolutely critical information that you're looking for? It's going to take time, isn't it? It, it, it can take time, but you can also, Ian, you know, you go out one night and you bump into someone, you, you end up chatting with them all night. You know, the next day you arrange to meet to watch the football. And before you know it, you know, mm. there can be that side and there'll be someone that doesn't talk to you for three months. Mm. So, so there's no exact science to it. It's all about relationships, how you talk to people, how you connect with them, that you've got money, they've got product, you know, and a lot of mm. times they'll approach you, bizarrely as it sounds, they'll come to you because you look interesting or you, you know, somebody's mentioned that you, you've seen Joe, you've seen that new car or whatever it might be. So there's no real exact mm. science. You know, I think the longest job I did was four years, mm. so four years into a community um, doing various mm. things to be real within the community. Mm. And on, on, on that stage, I suppose 18 months in was when I had a real bite you know, mm. with objects. So yeah. that's a long time. Yeah. Other times it could be the first night. Yeah, yeah. So and the other know. the other the other question I think a lot of people probably wonder about is to what extent are you allowed to break the law yourself? Because clearly when you're mixing with people who are career criminals, um you are not going to be expected to be an angel. Um no, of course. I, I, and of I and I not. and I know I know how that works from my policing background, but it might be useful to hear you describe that. Yeah, with with, with every you know, when I was at SO10, part of our job was to deal with all authorities, not like the authorities bureau. I think you were involved with those, weren't you? In a, mm. as, you know, That's signing right. them off. Yeah. On a daily basis, undercover jobs used to come into the SO10 office, and if you were duty that day as a DS, you took every docket to mm. the commander. And you sat with him and went through every docket. You wrote the authorities yourself. Mm. And then you went up and presented them to him. It wasn't presented. You'd sit like you and I are now and say, right, this job is a participating informant. He's going to you know, steal a car or you know, have a, uh, a car and lay it up for a team of robbers. These are the issues. Done. So you'd go through everything and you'd be his gatekeeper, but you'd write the authority. Mm. So you got every operation was authorised at, you know, um, senior level ripper in the latter days applied you were allowed to participate in certain crimes if it was authorized mm. um, but the fact of the matter is you didn't go out taking drugs every day the end you know you didn't yeah. go around shooting people mm. you didn't go around torturing people you, you know you had to use your skills mm. to avoid doing all the above yeah 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 well, you know, which is sometimes not easy yeah, really tricky. I can't remember who I was talking about this with on a previous podcast, but you know the uh, the danger, I suppose, you know, to be exposed by the baddies, by them, you know, testing you, yeah. um, by offering you drugs or 
uh, you know, prostitutes or yeah. uh, male or female, depending whatever your you know, pre preferences, yeah. um, you know, really, really difficult um, to get to to get out of those situations without compromising yourself, I suppose. No, I, I ended up, you know, when I was doing the job in Holland, um, I was working with a Dutch undercover guy and we were into uh, some really bad Dutch guys and we ended up in Spain with them for three days. And it was one of their birthdays and um, two big, you know, Cadillacs pulled up, Cadillacs for want of a better word, outside the restaurant we're at and we drive off into the country. Mm. Um, we pull up at this, not unknown to me, a brothel, you know, mm. And all the bad guys get out, and there's me and the Dutch you see there, and it's there's girls everywhere, whatever you like. Mm. And it, you know, the Dutch target said, crack on, boys. <laughs> you know, and it's you know, what you do in that situation. Some people yeah. are lovely, all my Christmases have come at once, but yeah, you know, tough, tough decisions to make there. Very tough decisions. Yeah, 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 definitely. And um yeah, I can't even, you know, I can't even, I mean, I'm a very, um, uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm definitely not a rule breaker for that way. You know, I never no. got, I never got, I never dropped in the shit the whole time I was in the police. I was always very honest about everything no. I did, you know, in fact, you know, I haven't, I, I actually, um, I did go through the selection process to, to do undercover work at one point. Um, I didn't get did through you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather not talk about it, but um, I. But the point I'm making is the feedback I got was, you're just too honest. You're too honest. Which isn't a bad thing, is it? You know, I think you'll struggle, uh, psychologically struggle, to, um, to live that sort of lie. You know, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and I was okay with that because it's always a no is as good as a yes, isn't it? Sometimes, uh, you know. You know. Well, when, when I was involved in all the undercover, so we were, you know, selecting. And those people that failed gave their everything in. Do you know what I mean? They really mm. did. And it didn't mean that they weren't good police officers. They weren't good detectives. They had a whole load of skills to offer. It just wasn't right for them. And they'd get themselves, you know, I always remember there was a guy that came up um, from the counties and he was a black guy and he had dreads and he looked the absolute you know you think and you can imagine everyone going he'd be great he'd be great and this poor lad you know when you put him in scenarios he was the nicest man you could ever meet do you know what i mean and he yeah. would through his looks and the way he'd got himself in a lot of deep trouble yeah i think he was probably more relieved than, than anyone on, you know during selection said we don't think this is for you you know and it was yeah. like you know yeah. Thank heavens for that. I'm yeah, sure. I know. I know. I mean, I when I look back on that, you know, the, the decision to put myself forward, um, it was a long time ago. But you know, be careful what you wish for sometimes in life, you know. And I'm yeah. I'm really, really glad that I didn't get no, through. Of course. Really your, glad. Your career path took a totally different Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was a, I was a, I was a DC. I was a DC at the time and yeah, you know, but I'm really, really glad that I didn't. I'm really because mm -hmm. you know I look at what's gone on, you know, uh, for a lot of friends and ex colleagues, and they've yeah, had a they've had a pretty torrid time of it, and psychologically, emotionally, um, and and I think now nah, life's life's complicated enough sometimes without bringing that element of complexity into your life. Sometimes it, it is incredible the number of 
you know, it's not only undercover people, you know, I'm not banging that drum, but certainly within my world, the number that have had huge breakdowns, you know, there's been suicides that are unreported, you know, you know, an ex UC who hung himself, you know, not talked about, not mentioned, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all encompassing, isn't it? Sometimes, but the same with any walk, any any type of police work. It's you know you can lose and you can lose yourself in a a normal job. Exactly yeah, the same. Definitely. So, were did you? Were the? I'm assuming there must have been times when you felt very close to being compromised or feeling that you were at significant risk in a particular deployment. Well, I remember, you know, towards the end of my career, I um, I left the Met and um, with five years service to go and I went and run uh, an undercover unit for uh, a county force, mm. um, a home counties force. And I got there to run their undercover unit and they immediately ran out of money. So mm. my DI said, you can go and work where you like, you know, mm. you're an expensive commodity. And off I went and was, you know, um, working for various different people, one particular long-term job up north, but the phone rang, I'd then go and do work for them. And on one particular mm. job, I remember sneaking into our office at headquarters because we had covert offices, but sometimes we had a little satellite office within the um, headquarters. And the office was empty. I'd snuck in the back door, no one had seen me, and the phone rang and um, picked it up and they said, we know who you are in the police office. So that was the time that I thought, you know, someone's selling me down the road here. Oh dear. It was all a bit scary. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't say anything to anyone until after I retired about that. Mm. Um, but I knew somebody was, you know, out to get me within within that force. Um, and that's and that's so the thing, isn't it? Could. The risk the risk of the risk of corruption to any type of police work is 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 really it's really really damaging isn't it but to this particular type of police work to have one corrupt officer who knows the identities of ucs and who can potentially sell that information to organized crime is well you're 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 probably signing someone's death warrant aren't you really absolutely you know that, that sounds a little bit dramatic doesn't it but um, you know, fortunately, I don't think we've ever had anyone seriously hurt, you know, hurt or, uh, you know, worse within the undercover community mm. um, as, as a result of, you know, compromises. But it's out there. We know it's live. Look mm. look at the current situation and look at what we're paying police officers now to join. Yeah. Look at the standards. You know, a relative of mine has been involved in training um, le- left within the last year of new recruits. And, you know, th- they had a... Um, a recruit who was in the back of a car in a drive-by shooting who was allowed to continue. Oh, my God. You know, they had somebody that was on bail for domestic violence who was still going through training. It's just, you know, so my my big fear now is we know in the 70s with, you know, poor pay and whatever corruption, I just think in five years' time, yeah, no, it's definitely it's going to take time. Really it's going to take time to work its way through, isn't it? So, I mean, some of the some of the nightmares around the mistakes made around vetting, and, and we're not talking a few; we're talking thousands, aren't we? Um, I think you're absolutely right, and unfortunately, we're going to see that combined with very poor pay and very low morale 
um, is going to create a toxic mix. And I can see there have been real problems on a, with corruption on a level that we've probably never seen before. There is no doubt that organised crime groups have tried over the years. But when you're trying to get 19,000 new recruits in at all costs, you know, and this relative sent me some um, uh, incident report books where they're writing their evidence. Hmm. They were written in text speak. Oh, my God. This is their evidence, Ian. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As you or I would text each other. Yeah. You just, I know. No, I, I, I know. know. Well, you, well, I think people are waking up to it now, aren't they? They're waking up to it and realizing that, um, you know, the government didn't do us any favors, but but the solution now is just feels like they're just moving too quick and they're not thinking. They're not thinking things through a little bit. Well, I think um, this earn as you learn as well. You know, um, the relative was saying that yeah, they're earning as they're learning, getting their degree, and they're gone. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the attrition rate is. Yeah, no, it's very, it's very high, isn't it? It's nearly about ten, typically about ten percent, something like that. Uh, you know, what, what, one of my big bugbears is um, when we retire. There's nothing. There's no preparation for it. I don't know what you thought. Um, mm. I was told by my DI I was out doing a long-term job. Did you got to go on your pre-retirement do um, two days? I said I'm not going. Did you are going? I got to put a tick in it. You going? So I always remember, this will live with me forever. I went there and there was a, uh, um, what's it called? People were all sat in a curve. What's that called? A horseshoe? Yeah, yeah. Horseshoe. And (laughs) I remember to my left was a couple and um, it was a lovely lady. And she'd been a civilian for 29 years. And she brought her husband who was a gas fitter. And, you know, people had to tell their story. And she said, oh, we bought a motorhome and we're going around Europe. And honestly, the, the happiness on their faces was, you know, <laughs> was lovely. And other people were going, oh, I've got 100 days to go. And, you know, and um, there was like an admiral or whatever who was facilitating this from the Navy. And uh, our first session, I kid you not, before lunch was writing a will, <laughs> limb replacements, <laughs> I swear to God, limb replacements. And what was the other one? I can't can't remember. Care homes or something like it's that. A, it's APPY. Yeah. It's just so he went, right, coffee break. Anyone got any questions? And I went, yes. Uh, he went, well, I said, I'm not sure I'm on the right course. He said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm not sure I'm on the right. You're going to do the free retirement course. <laughs> and it was honestly, Ian, that was it. So I phoned up my DI at coffee break and I never came back. Oh, no. How, you know, know. what you could do, the skills I know. police officers have. Why don't we do more? We just... Yeah. Well, I don't think, I don't think, when you look at the difference between the way cops are, you know, prepared for retirement, which is like nothing, basically. A nil. A nil. And the way that military are oh. prepared, you know, the and and the, the military will say because I've got quite a few mates in the military uh, or ex-military, they'll say they'll slag off the they'll slag off their pre-retirement uh, stuff. But I'll say, well, at least you got something, Absolutely. you know. At least it might not have been perfect. I mean, a lot of them will actually say, to be fair, it was very comprehensive. Yeah, yeah. But it was very comprehensive. However. The reality of leaving the military 
you know, they couldn't have prepared anyone for the shock of leaving the military. No, whereas no. we, whereas I think cops get that. They get the shock of leaving policing, but without any preparation Nothing. whatsoever. It's over. You know? It's, mm, um, mm. We we were fortunate enough. We used to do a lot of work with Hereford from our office, so mm. you know I'd I'd often go up there and you know um, talk about hero worship. Those guys, you know, mm. back in the day they were huge burly guys, you know, uh, yeah. up Hereford. Mm. And now they're like that, and they ride bikes. They're all, and they're they're all racing snakes, aren't they? Absolutely. But you know. Uh, I used to help with legends, you know, with their legends and stuff while when they had to do stuff behind, you know, in various places around the world. And um, all of them, you know, used to look in their eyes and these these guys were amazing. And all of them, when they were coming up to retirement, said they never wanted to hear the bang of a gun again. Mm. You know, it was a big, big thing for them. Yeah. So they had to prepare a totally different life. Do you know mm. what I mean? To go, mm. I get myself away. Mm. yeah but they did have some help we have nothing yeah and how did you find it when you left i mean how i mean did you struggle um psychologically from (laughs) having done the job that you did i left ian so i'd been a uc for 20 years and the force that i was working for on a long-term job said will you come back as a civilian and be an undercover officer so i signed up with them i think i was only the second one in the country I was working undercover as a civilian. Bloody hell. Right away. So I did whatever the gap was you had to do for tax. I can't remember what it was. If you yeah. took the lump. Yeah. Um, and I went straight back as an undercover. So that was my extra two years. So I did 22 years undercover. Um, and I did that. And, you know, it was still in my system. And then the mm. college of policing... I went there for 18 months and trained all the cover officers in the country. Right, okay. You know, to come through, they had to have a cover officer qualification as part so of So you the... kind of eased yourself out of it. I did. And then overnight, I went, you know, I've been out 10 years now. Right. So um, it feels like yesterday. Mm. But, yeah, I, and now I've, for the last six years, I've had nothing to do whatsoever. Do you, do you find yourself getting a bit paranoid sometimes, depending on where you are ge- geographically, or does it just You're not bother you? think this is really big-headed, but <laughs> it doesn't worry me. And, you know, I, I do certain things before I come. I never put my family at risk. Mm. But, you know, if mm. I'm at risk, I'm at risk. It's down to me, isn't it, you know? Mm. Mm. It's... It's a long time ago, you know. Look yeah, at, yeah, yeah. It, it's I look a lot different now, you know. I'm not yeah. the slim, lithe machine that I was once. <laughs> and then somebody said to me last week, they said, "Joe, you know, you're in the last twenty years of your life." I oh, went, cheers! Thank you very cheers. much. Yeah. Cheers! Thanks for that. Probably am though. Yeah. Probably am. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, let's hope that uh, you get more than twenty uh, years nice, to uh, to enjoy, but. Uh, Listen, my friend, it's probably not a bad place just to kind of draw a line there, but um, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. It was fascinating. We covered a lot of ground, didn't we? Yeah, and thank you, Ian. Um, Really nice meeting you. Yeah, no, and you, and you. I'll whisk you off your feet and take you for some... (laughs) (laughs) oh i know i know well there's a long list mate there's a long list that you know it's you're going to be episode 67 or something like that you know so i know it's mad (laughs) i'm far off my age (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it'd be great i keep on that i've had this mad idea of trying to organize a bit of a piss up somewhere that'd be really interesting and uh, get all the uh 
podcast guests in, in one place or as many of them as a could get physically get there and b could be asked you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> which It'd is probably, good, though, probably more likely that to organize more likely the second of those two you know but uh yeah no it'll be good and um yeah we can just all just slap each other on the back and tell each other how fucking brilliant how, we are. how great we are <laughs> <laughs> well listen really nice to meet you and you take all care all right yeah you take care my Stay friend safe. and uh, keep your head down all right mate I will take, do. Care. take care bye 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 Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>